Well, we enter into Holy Week, and my prayer is that we would enter into Holy Week along with Jesus, along with those disciples, along with the people that were there in Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna, save us, save us, O Lord. And I wonder if that's the posture of our heart this morning, because we enter into Holy Week, um, I don't know about you, but the temptation for me is that this is a familiar story. And when there's familiarity in the scriptures, uh, we tend to just kind of gloss over it. Uh, and my hope is that we would see something that maybe we've never seen before, because at some point, we, we, exactly like Alicia just prayed, right, we, we, we get lost in maybe the details of just one part of the story. And our culture, we'll, we just said it, we just announced it, there will be more people in this room next week uh, that probably haven't been in church in many, many weeks. And, and my fear for those that are Christmas uh, Christians and Easter Christians is that they only get the same two stories every year. They get the story of Jesus' birth and they get the story of Jesus' resurrection. My goodness, there is a lot there, but it's not nearly the full picture. It reminded me of our spring break trip. Uh, and spring, during spring break, my family and I went to Austin, uh, which I love that town, but there are some things about it that are growing wearisome, like the cost of everything. My gosh! It is just insanely expensive to go to Austin these days. But the best part of the trip was when we went to my favorite brewery. Brewery? Brewery? Brewery. And um, I, I, I say favorite. It's really the only one I go to. So don't like come up to me like, ooh, have you been to this one? Have you been to this one? No, I have not. Um, but it is my favorite, and it's called Lazarus Brewing Company. And the reason why I like it, number one, the name is awesome, but number two, it's a church plant. It's a Christian church plant. It's a dude that planted a church out of his business that he started. So like Monday or actually Sunday afternoon all the way to Saturday night, he's serving beer, he's serving tacos, he's serving coffee. And on Sunday morning, the people that they reached all week at their bar tops or whatever it may be are invited into a gospel message on Sunday morning. So I love it. But one of the other reasons why I love it is because of the stained glass that's there. And I took a picture of it this time, and I'm going to try and show it to you today. So this is the stained glass that's out on their patio uh, of Jesus and what I believe to be Mary. And I brought my kids over there this time, and I, like, broke away from the tacos and whatever else we were drinking. And we got over here to this stained glass, and I just said, look up, kids. And they were like, huh, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to go back to my seat. And I just sit underneath this thing, and ever since I've taken a picture, and I just, just, just stared at it, right? And I just keep staring. And I actually said, don't, don't leave yet, y'all. Like, look at this beauty. I want you to see the bigger picture on what I see, because I've stared at this thing a few times. Because I see Jesus with his hand on a snake, and that gets me excited. That gets me excited about this, this conquering king that's coming into Jerusalem. But I also see this little sliver of darkness between Mary and Jesus. And I'm reminded, yeah, that serpent's work ain't done. This world is fallen. But I get hope again when I see Mary's devotion with that oil that's poured out on this, uh, this stained glass. Do you see all these little things? And you also see then the keys to the kingdom right there in the middle of both of them. Almost as if there's an exchange from Jesus to Mary. And it is a female that's uh, portrayed here. Not another male disciple, but yet a female disciple. There's so much beauty in this. The more I stare at it, the more I think about it, that the bigger picture of God's kingdom truly starts to come into my own heart. But if I just stare at it for a moment, I just see one or two things. And that's my prayer for us today. As we enter into Holy Week with Palm Sunday, we would just stare at it a little bit longer. 
We would start to pick up more and more detail, a little bit more, and a little bit here, and a little bit there. So that we can start to see this beautiful picture of God reaching out for sinners. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing today. That's what he does today as he rides into Jerusalem on the colt, the baby donkey that Aaron so eloquently wrote about yesterday on our email. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. So I want you to just just pull back a little bit from what you think you know about Palm Sunday and stare a little bit. Stare a little bit at the facts of history. There were more than 250,000 people swelling into this small city of Jerusalem during this week in preparation for Passover. Passover was coming, and there were people all over the area flooding into Jerusalem. 250,000 people coming into this small city. Uh, it, it, like, it would flood the markets, would it not? Like, I don't know what happened with you during this last year, but when something crazy happened, like the grocery stores, like, they just ran out of all the things, did they not? Even with the freeze that happened last month, they just ran out of everything. My kids read Hunger Games this year. My oldest two, not Moses, because that would be amazing. I mean, we should, we should talk about that on other things. But my oldest two uh, read Hunger Games this year. And I was like, it's like the Hunger Games at the grocery store. And they were like, really? They wanted to go all of a sudden. I was like, no, not really. But it kind of feels that way sometimes. No lunch meat, no paper towels. What's going on out here? But like, if you can imagine that kind of chaos going into Jerusalem, there's no... There's no distribution supply chain going into that city. And yet there are many people, the, the months of preparation it would have taken in the hospitality industry, in the, in the markets, amazing uh, amounts of preparation would have been happening in this city and, and leading up to these moments when Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem. That's just, that's just practical stuff. But then the background to all this is that Jesus was also getting close to Jerusalem. And he was finally letting people praise him. And he was finally receiving uh, honor as a king. Which was something he did not do for the first three years of his ministry. People wanted to praise him. People wanted to spread the word about him. He goes, it's not my time. It's not my hour. Remember that story with, with, with his mother, Mary? Woman, it ain't my hour. Right? He's, just, he's speaking very eloquently, but very, very faithfully to his mom. It's not my time. And yet now he rides into Jerusalem, and what, what happened? What happened right before this? He's two miles out of the city, and what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And he waits right before this for Lazarus to make sure everybody knew that Lazarus had the, the stink of death on him. It wasn't just, just into the grave in the afternoon and out in the evening. No, he was there for days before Jesus comes in and raises him from the grave. Why? Why does he do all this stuff intentionally? What's he up to? What story is he writing? What picture is he painting for us to grasp? You see, the Jews that were flooding into Jerusalem, some 250,000 of them, were now all of a sudden going into Jerusalem, kind of unpacking their bags, and then going to the pool, like, in a way. Like, you ever do that at a hotel? You go in, you're like, I can get my stuff unpacked. I'm headed to the pool. They get their stuff unpacked, and wherever they're staying, and they head back out to Bethany. They're not headed to a pool. They're going to go see with their eyes what just happened in Bethany. It's just a two-mile trek, guys. We can make it. Be there and back by lunch. They go out to Bethany and they see Jesus. Oh, gosh, that's, that's really the guy. But who else do they see? Lazarus. They also see evidence of resurrection. And so when they 
come back into the city. When Jesus comes into the city and rides down the Mount of Olives and he looks over Jerusalem and they're praising him and saying, Hosanna, save us. They have evidence that he has the capability to do so. Oh my gosh. This flurry of activity is whipping up a storm of anticipation, of expectation that the king is finally here. He's here. He just raised Lazarus, y'all. He's here. He's going to come. He's going to overthrow Rome. The insurrection that just happened is going is to find its fulfillment in Jesus. Did you say, what insurrection? And that's a purposeful word that I'm using. What insurrection? That's the one that Mark talks about, that Barabbas was in jail for murder during the insurrection. History would tell us that that's one of the reasons why Jesus ends up getting killed by Pilate. Because he wants to try and keep peace. You see, there's just been a rebellion. There's just been an insurrection against Rome. And now Jesus rides in, and they're going, finally, Messiah is here. Finally, the guy that has the power to raise people from the dead, he's going to overthrow our enemies. He's going to take down the government. He's going to overthrow Rome. The anticipation is here. The expectation is here. Oh, man. I hope you can feel it. I hope you can see it. I hope you find yourself in this story on the side of the road wondering what Jesus is going to do next. That's actually the question, right? Where are you in this story? What are you anticipating him to do on this day? What are you anticipating him to do? What are you pleading with Jesus to do this week for you? What have you been pleading with him for? For months For years, maybe. That's why you've been so connected to the news. That's why you've been so connected to social media. You've just been pleading for something right to happen in the midst of so many wrongs. Isn't that the thing that's that's just stirring up in our hearts when we enter into Jerusalem with Jesus? So much that he could do. What, though, will he do? What will the Messiah choose to do? What message will it bring when he chooses to do it? And maybe more powerfully, what will he choose not to do? What will he choose not to do during this week? So I wonder where you are. I wonder what your expectation is of Jesus is on this day. I wonder if you've got a clear picture as to what he's up to as he rides in or what kind of fuzzy picture needs to come into focus. I wonder if we get caught up in our own expectations, our own anticipations, our own hopes for this Messiah, and I wonder if we will accept the kind of salvation that Jesus has come to bring, or will we demand some other sort of salvation? Will we we expect him to do something different than what he actually came to do? And when he does something different, what will be our response? See, that's, that's the biggest question of all for Good Friday and Holy Week is, is, wait a minute, whoa, the king has come. Well, how did he end up dead? Something happened. He didn't do what they thought he should do, and they turned on him in a hurry. So what is it? What is it that Jesus clarifies on Palm Sunday as we enter into Palm Sunday and head into Holy Week? My hope is to kind of uh, clear up the picture, but also paint a bigger picture by pointing out some details here that are not only found in Luke, but also in the book of John. So I want to read from the book of John here as as he rides into Jerusalem. These are the things that he's speaking to his 
to his disciples, right? Book of John, chapter 12, verse 23 through 28, should come up on your screen, uh, on the screen behind me. So the first thing that Jesus is going to clarify is that uh, he has a mission. And that mission is death for life. His death for your life. Look at what it says in John 12, verse 23 through 28. And I'm just, I'm just I'm cutting up this, this, this story, and I, I'm really trying not to, but I just want to give you a little bit of peace of what's going on. Look at what he says um, when others want to see Jesus. These Greeks come in, and they go, we want to see Jesus. And this is what he answers them with. He says, the hour has come. Remember? All the time. The, the hour, my hour's not yet here. It's not yet time. Y'all be quiet about the Messiah. Y'all be quiet about what I can do. No, no. Now the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified, to be known, to be made high. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Amazing. The Father, that's a promise, y'all. The Father will honor you if you serve this Son of Man who has come to be glorified through death. See, his mission is death for life. Palm Sunday, leading into Holy Week, clarifies for us that Jesus didn't come to establish the kind of kingdom that we had imagined that he would establish. It was far, far greater. And the Sunday of Holy Week reminds us, yes, it reminds us that God is on a mission and nothing will stand in the way of his mission. Listen to me now. Not politics. Remember the insurrection. That's a political thing. Not politics will stand in his way. Not preference. Remember him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. Not preference, not politics, or people. Remember the Pharisees stand in his way and want to silence him out of the, the story that we just read out of Luke 19. You better tell those guys to be quiet. Nothing will stand in his way of accomplishing the mission of glorifying his father by not being served, not flexing his authoritative muscles as the king and creator of all things, but by becoming a servant to all, by giving his life as a ransom. By giving his life as a ransom. Jesus is not fickle. Remember we just confess, oh, we're just fickle. Love how these things come together on a Sunday morning. Jesus is not fickle in his mission, and he will not get caught up in lesser things. But to be fickle is human. But Jesus remains steadfast on his overall mission. He is steadfast to remind us that life is found through death. And this death, his death, would produce much fruit. That's what he says, that it's got to die. It's got to go into the ground. It's got to get hidden. It's got to be buried for a season of time where you can't even see what's happening. You can't see the miracle of resurrection, of winter to spring. You can't see any of that. It's unseen. You have to believe it. You have to believe that things are working when you put seed into the ground. And what happens at the end of it? A harvest. And what is the harvest? It's you. It's you. It's me. 
It's all those who would believe. It's all those who would, who would follow him into Jerusalem that would continue to cry out, Hosanna, no matter what comes. But if it comes and we're not ready and we fail, he's still coming for you. We're the people. We're the, we're the harvest. We're the fruit that will last for all of eternity. But it happens through death. Not by getting what we want, but by giving up what we need to give up for the sake of of others. See, if he knew, friends, if he knew that the hour had come for him and he had orchestrated all these things, remember, he stayed where he was so that Lazarus could die, so that he could show up, resurrect him from the dead. Other people are flooding into Jerusalem, coming out to see him in Bethany, just two miles out, then going back in on a Sunday to go in and do all these things throughout the week, all perfectly timed by the creator of all things and the Messiah. If he will do all that for his son, if we will do all that one time, how much more for your life? Is he in control of all things? Of every illness, of every disappointment, of every fired from your job, of every promotion in your job, of every place that you may work or live, or every difficulty or success, how much more is he orchestrating all those things so that you can see his glory, so that you can see his goodness, so that you can see and believe again and again that our God is in control of all things, whether it puts us in our house for a year or kicks us out for many more. He is in control. Every trial, every trouble, every anxiety that we just talked about for, for many weeks, right? Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says in John 12. Everything. Every difficulty, every death is all a part of God's mission of serving us in his son Jesus, ensuring that we see his goodness and glory. He is steadfast, y'all, in redeeming you. Nothing will get in his way of his mission of redeeming lost people, of redeeming the wayward, of bringing back, of calling home those who would run far and fast. That's the first thing we see in all this that gets clarified through this bigger picture. Jesus' mission is death for life. The second thing we see is Jesus' identity. We go back over to Luke 19. Jesus' identity. Who is he? Is he the authoritative king? Is he a dictator? No, he is the servant king. He is the servant king. And so you may be asking yourself, is God, if God is going to, to, to orchestrate all things for his glory and our good, how is he actually going to do that? And can we trust him in the midst of the ebbs and flows of light and darkness, of comfort and discomfort, of, of success and suffering? How do we trust him through all of that? How can we trust him to do all of this for our good and his glory? A few things kind of stand out. To help us remember that he is trustworthy, especially here in Luke chapter 19. And I could go on and on, but I just want to point out two things that are helpful for us. Right? If you remember, this is a Jewish city in the Jewish nation of Israel. And yes, they are ruled by a Gentile governing uh, authority of Rome. But it is a Jewish people that are on this road. And what do they see? What do they see as he rides into Jerusalem? Is he a miracle man? Does he do many miracles? Of course. Is he a Messiah? Yeah, he definitely is a Messiah. Is he God himself? He's about to receive praise for being just that. 
Look what happens when we see the details here. Twice does it say that he came down the mountain called Olivet. Verse in, first in verse 29, and then again in verse 37, that he is riding down this, uh, or he's headed down this, this Olivet, this Mount of Olives, as he tells his guys to go into Jerusalem, get this colt, and bring him back out. And he rides into Jerusalem uh, from the Mount of Olives. That is a significant detail for us because it pulls from the Old Testament prophets to say to us, this is the way the Lord would come back when he's going to uh, right all the wrongs in the world. He's coming back from the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 would say. It's from the Mount of Olives that God himself, the Lord, will return and enter into Jerusalem. And right all the wrongs. So when it says the Mount of Olives or the Olivet, like there's a significant detail for us to realize. This is no just Jesus riding into Jerusalem. This is King Jesus riding into Jerusalem. So if we're not careful in our lives, we can emphasize one thing or another. And, and many times I'll be prone and susceptible to emphasizing the kingship of Jesus. Man, he's in control. He is the Lord. He's over all. He's sovereign. If he's not sovereign, he's, I mean, we're all sunk. He's over all things. And so we, we, we have to emphasize that so we can flourish, especially if we're going to escape the trap of anxiety and trying to control all things, which is what we've been talking about. So that's one side of things that we've got to remember that God is definitely saying in these scriptures. The other side of things is that he's not going to be the king that we think he's going to be. He's going to serve us. He's going to serve us with humility. And so this second detail is that he is on a baby donkey. A baby donkey, which I find uh, somewhat hilarious uh, because of all the depictions in our culture of donkeys, especially in kids' uh, movies and things like that. But he is on a baby donkey, a colt that was tied, that was never ridden. It was specifically reserved just for Jesus, which is why he can go, I know exactly where it is. You guys will find it. They'll probably ask you about it. Just tell them that the Lord needs it. Fascinating. And they're good with it. They're like, oh, okay, oh, the Lord. Okay, got it. If you say that about me or anything that I own, I'm going to tell you you're crazy. But nonetheless, they're good with it, right? And what do we see? We see in the Old Testament, again, this baby donkey, or especially in the Old Testament, that a donkey was what uh, David saddled his son Solomon on when he rode into Jerusalem to anoint him as the king. It's an, it, it's an animal of peace. It's an animal of servitude, actually. When you want something done on a farm, you grab a donkey so that they can pull whatever you need to pull. They can, they can do the things that you're asking them to do. It is an animal of servitude. I don't know about you, but um, I grew up in the 80s, and if you remember this in the 80s, um, like you would always see this on the news every once in a while. You kind of see it every once in a while now, but not as much. But I remember on the 80s, like very, very distinctly watching the news and seeing these parades from Russia in particular with all of their troops out in the square with missiles on tanks. Do you remember this? And they were like, like doing this number instead of marching like regular soldiers. I don't know who goes into battle with their knees knocked, but apparently the Russians do. And that's how they would show their military might. They would, they would intimidate their enemies by, by showing this and then broadcasting it, not just to their own people, but around the world. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? You kind of see it now with China. You might see it uh, with Iran. But those were like, I remember as a kid growing up being like, oh, man, the communists are going to come get us. Of course, that was the narrative in the day, right? 
But that was certainly like an indelible impression for me as a kid about parades and about how you flex your military might. If you think about Jesus and the juxtaposition of what he's up to, he's not even riding on a horse. See, that's what they would have expected. That's what they had in their history. Um, You know, the story of the Maccabees is that Judah Maccabee saved the temple from being desecrated, and he rode into Jerusalem on a horse to say, I am, I got it, man. Like, I just saved Jerusalem. And they're waiting again just some couple of hundred years later, expecting Jesus to do the same thing. But he doesn't ride in on a war horse. Not on this day. That comes later. Read Revelation 19 if you want to see that. No, on this day, he rides into Jerusalem, into God's holy city, on a donkey, on a baby donkey. And he does so not to intimidate the enemies, not to scare his oppressors. No, he shows his hand on the kind of king he's going to be when he serves. That he gives life through his own death by defeating evil with peace. Defeating the devil's lies with the truth and through serving and humility. And what I love about the the differences between what a horse does and what a donkey does is how high you are on a horse. See, if Jesus wanted to, to be seen as someone who was up there, oh man, our Messiah has come. He's here. He's come. He's come to rescue us. He would be on a horse but he's on a donkey. When he's riding in and he sees you, he's eye level. And he knows what's in your heart. He knows what you're going to do later on this week. And he just stares at you, receiving your praise. But he knows. Remember, he's sovereign. Remember, he's present with his people. And now eye-level Messiah rides into Jerusalem as they wave palm branches at him and they shout, Hosanna, save us. Save us, God, from whatever it is that you've come to save us. But I wish that that was the cry of their hearts. It was instead, save us from Rome. Only Rome will we accept it. Save us. He rides in so we can see him. We can see who he really is. And can you, I hope you see his tenderness. I hope you see the tenderness in his eyes but the devotion to you at the same time. Because that's what we see. That's the third thing that gets clarified is Jesus' heart. As he rides into Jerusalem, eye level with us. And he sees us and we lock eyes with him. It's his devotion that I pray we see. See, this is the hardest thing to understand about Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem on this day because the hour had come and now God's heart was going to be revealed for you. He rode into the city that would worship him on Sunday and kill him on Friday. And he knew. He knew the suffering that was before him. He knows the suffering that's before you. He knows. And he is steadfast on making sure that we are devoted as he is devoted. There are two events that demonstrate his devotion to our devotion that I want to read in Luke 19 that we didn't read. So Luke 19, picking up on the story, verse 41 through 48. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time as we ride in here with him. Look at what it says. Look at his posture as he rides into Jerusalem. Now when he drew near to the city on this donkey, and they're shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees are going, hey, better tell them to shut up. He says, I will never. The rocks will cry out if they do. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. What would he say when he was weeping? Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and they will surround you and hem you in on every side and they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What is he talking about? Oh, if they would have just opened their eyes to the kind of peace that Jesus came to give that was far greater than the kind of peace that they would try to establish with their own might, with their own wisdom, with their own cunning deceptions to overthrow the government. You see, that's what he's prophesying about here in Luke 19. Not only does he say in Matthew and in other places, I mean, I longed and I weep over Jerusalem. I long for you to come under my care like a hen cares for, his, for her chicks. I'm weeping for that. But here in Luke, the emphasis is different. The emphasis is on political insurrection. Because just 37 years later, Jerusalem would get sick of Rome. And they would rise up. The Jews would rise up against Rome. And they'd go, all right, we've had it. We're going to take it to them now. And what would happen in history? Rome would crush Jerusalem. And so he's prophesying and he's weeping over what he knows is going to happen. He knows that the Roman armies will encircle Jerusalem and tear down the temple brick by brick. He knows it. And he's weeping over their lack of loyalty, really, to him, their king. His salvation would be different, and they would be easy to forget, not just by the end of the week, but some decades later, when they try to take matters into their own hand and overthrow the government, and it ends real poorly for God's people, Jewish people. That's the first thing that happens. But the second thing that happens with his devotion, and he's weeping over his people's devotion to politics and national loyalty over, over instead God reconciling sinners to himself. But the second thing that's happening right here is, is Mark's gospel shows us that he rode into the temple, he looked around on Sunday, and then he went back out. Back out to Bethany on Sunday. But on Monday morning, just a little bit of time from now, he rides back into Jerusalem without the fanfare. What's his first priority? Let's read verse 45. And he entered the temple, the place that's going to get torn down in just a few decades. To Jesus, he sees it as has already happened. He rides into that place. And he goes into that place and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the peoples were hanging on his every word. Not only does he weep over their out-of-order affections, but now he comes again. He is devoted to our devotion to him, that we would not be pulled away, not from lesser things or things that we think we can fix through the right vote or through whatever it may be, but instead also in our devotion to him. 
our devotion to Jesus is, is certainly found in how we treat the temple. And I'm not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. It's been destroyed since AD 70 because it has been destroyed. I'm talking about the temple of our hearts. It's a picture, right? He knows it's going to be destroyed, so why is he so still devoted to it? It's a picture. It's a picture for us to learn what are we doing to our own hearts? Are we prioritizing relationship, prayer? That this, my house, will be a house of prayer. Or are we prioritizing efficiency, commerce, transactions? Like, I can't tell you how many times, and, and I, like good-hearted people, especially men, good-hearted men, in this season, denying many Christian rhythms because they got to make a buck. Denying certain, certain aspects of faithfulness, of worship, of prayer, whatever that may be. Maybe it's showing up on a Sunday. Maybe it's other things so that they can get their life right. Jesus rides into this temple, us, our hearts. He says, man, you, you can't keep putting things out of order. I'm so devoted to you, I will wipe this place clean and start over so that you can get the picture of how I want you to live. Wholly devoted to my name because I'm wholly devoted to you. You see, in the temple, it was standard practice, especially during Passover in Jerusalem, for it basically to be like a $5 water when you go to an A&M game. Not that I would know anything about that. Right? They're just taking advantage of the fact that you didn't bring any water, and we didn't let you bring any water. They actually will now, which is great. They're taking advantage of the fact that you didn't come prepared, and it's the same thing that was happening in Jerusalem Temple in those days, taking advantage of those who didn't bring a sacrifice for the temple. So they would upcharge everybody. They would mess up the scales on the money changing, and Jesus is not having it. See, they had exchanged prayer for practicality, worship for profit, and he comes in and cleanses the temple for the second time in his ministry. And I'm here to say today, like, if you have walked away from Jesus in this last year, number one, we're really glad you're here. We're really glad you're tuning in. But if you've, if you've been, like, entrapped this year and you didn't even know it, like, if there's ever a year to have been kind of entrapped into some lesser things, it would be this past year, wouldn't it? On Wednesday of this last week, I met with a bunch of other Acts 29 pastors. We're part of a, a network called Acts 29. And as we went around the room, uh, black, white, Hispanic, like it didn't matter, uh, the same story, old, young, people have been in ministry for a year, people have been in ministry for 30 years, it was the same story. And that was this, our hearts are still recovering from watching all of our friends and family get pulled out of the church by lesser things. You guys have experienced this. You've seen it. You've, you, you've felt it. You've watched some people that you love and care for totally deny Jesus and his church. And I'm not talking about just the Grove. I'm talking about Big C Church. You've seen it. They've gotten caught up in conspiracies around masks and now vaccines and, oh, by the way, politics along the way. They've gotten caught up in all the things that we think that we can control and make better if we would just engage X, Y, or Z way. And all of a sudden... Our devotion to Jesus becomes real prevalent when we start denying him when he doesn't fix the things that we thought he would fix. If there was ever a time, friends, when Jesus should have had national pride, it would have been when he was riding into Jerusalem. But he lets it go. He knows 
his own people are going to suffer. He knows his own people are going to be basically be destroyed. He knows the temple, his father's house, is going to get taken down. He knows, and he doesn't fix it. We have to get our minds around that kind of Jesus. We have to get our hearts around the kind of Jesus that will allow temporary sufferings for a greater good of repentance and faith, of whole devotion unto him. Because he is wholly devoted to reconciling sinners of every political allegiance. Remember, the Roman centurion soldier is one of the first people after Jesus Jesus dies to go, this surely was the son of God. It was a Roman soldier, probably would have been in that A.D. 70 thing if he wasn't saved. Who knows if he was there? The Roman soldier and a bunch of Jewish people that were being brought into a new community of faith. It was every level of faith that you have, whether you're a deserter like Peter or you're a betrayer like Judas. And that's the beauty of Holy Week is that we're all included and all invited into our devotion to him. Why? Because he's been wholly devoted to your holiness from the beginning of the world, from before the beginning of the world. So it's no wonder he can orchestrate a week of your life. He's orchestrated all things. He's, he holds all things together. So Friday doesn't come by surprise. Sunday didn't come by surprise. Easter, oh man, Sunday will not come by surprise for the God of all things. He who says, I am the resurrection and the life, was just waiting to prove it just a few days later. And he's also waiting to show you in your life. The places where we've grown weary of Jesus, and go, man, you're just getting old, Jesus. Get out of my business. Places where we've, we've been wayward to Jesus, and we just got, yeah, I'm good. Appreciate that thought about, you know, my wallet and my kids and my wife. I'm out. It was a good suggestion, though. It was fun. So you go live your life in the darkness on the internet. He's come for all people. And the proof of that, the proof of that, he calls Judas friend. And he stands next to Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, and he says, I'll stand in your place. And he says to that thief on that cross, you come with me to paradise today, bro. We're going. He didn't say exactly like that. That invitation remains for you. I don't care what your week looks like. I don't care what you've been dabbling in in 2020 and in 21. I don't care where your loyalties have been tested. I don't care what conspiracies you've been given to. I don't care. Jesus doesn't care. If only you would repent and believe in him. Lord, I've been prideful. I've done things my own way. I've established my own rhythms and rules of life, and I've shirked your own ways. But he calls out to you to say, man, there is greater news for you. You don't have to be in control of your life and be riddled with anxiety. No, I've come so that you don't have the illusion that you're in control of your life. And so I will lay my life down for you. This seed must go into the ground, and it will produce fruit, a beautiful promise and a grand invitation for all of us who would heed it. So will you? If you're a believer today, will you continue to say Hosanna when it gets real hard? If you're a believer today, will you continue to shout Hosanna 
when he doesn't do what you hoped he would do in the timing that he would do it? Or when that disappointment hits you, will you go, crucify him. I'm done with you. You hang, and I don't care. That's what Palm Sunday invites us into. A life of Hosanna, or just a little bitty day. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for help to be people of Hosanna. Our Father in heaven, nothing catches you off guard. Not Palm Sunday, not Temple Cleansing Monday, not Maundy Thursday of a betrayal, not Good Friday of the crucifixion, not Silent Saturday where you just didn't say a thing, and certainly not Resurrection Sunday. Nothing catches you off guard. But the question remains on how we will respond today. Lord, you remain steadfast to your mission. You didn't get caught up in lesser things of our political hopes, of our, of our hopes of righting wrongs, of injustice of any kind, economic or racial or whatever it may have been. You didn't, you didn't get caught up in those things in these ways. No, you kept first things first and you wanted to reconcile sinners because if you reconcile sinners, our political things, man, they don't matter anymore. Our racial injustices, they get reconciled in you. But if we would get caught up into really good things and forsake the first, we will be caught up there forever and lose you. So, Lord, reprioritize our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and what we look at, what we're fasting from, to be wholly devoted to the humble servant King Jesus who came to lay down his life for rebels. Who do get caught up in lesser things. I get caught up in, I got caught up yesterday in softball and baseball, way more in my devotion than to you. much less all this other stuff. So forgive us, Father, by the blood of your Son, Jesus, which we know will be shed by Friday, by the power of resurrection that comes on Sunday. Forgive us. Draw us near and let us stay near. Stay the course. Holy Spirit, give us the power. Holy Spirit, remind us who we are, that we are. We would just cry out, Abba, Father. We don't know what we need, but you're going to help us. Help us stay steadfast to you. In the days ahead and the weeks ahead, when the next bit of chaos breaks out in our world, and we're tempted to turn you over for a small price, Lord, help us. Help us remain faithful. We trust you to do these things and so much more. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.